It is, it is super good to see you guys. It just, it feels like it's been forever since we did this. So a big part of that, guys, I think you know, is I, we, I took out, we did a trip to Israel. So that was a couple weeks of me being out of the room and gone. And I, just real quick, won't spend much time on that, but if you ever get the opportunity to go do that, it is worth doing at least one time uh, in your life. It is just, it's a remarkable thing. And the best way I can describe it to you, it takes the Bible from black and white, it moves it to color. All right, let, let me share just like one moment that we had on the trip that was new to me. I had never seen uh, this before. Uh, they took us to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which, you know, you read that in scripture and you go, well, yeah, it's just another town somewhere, you know, around that location. So as we're going there, uh, they explain to us and go, well, actually, Caesarea Philippi is, is less a town than it is a destination. And what it was, the Romans had come in, uh, there's a place on a mountain there, and they had dug into the side of the mountain little alcoves, and then they had placed idols to every single potential god uh, that you could hypothetically worship. And the idea was you would go to Caesarea Philippi and then you would uh, worship all of these false gods. You've gotta also remember that uh, much of the economy in the day is agrarian, it's all farmers. So everything revolves around fertility. So a ton of this pagan worship that's going on in Caesarea Philippi is you go to the temple prostitute, you have sex with the temple prostitute in order to be blessed with fertility in your crops. So it's just a dark place of pagan worship. The other thing is, is that as it's there in the side of the mountain, there's this monstrous cave and uh, the cave goes super deep into the mountain, and the idea was, the myth of the time was, that the cave went all the way down to the very entrance of hell, okay? So here's this huge cave, goes down to the entrance of hell, all of these false gods, and then if you're a first century Christian, hearing the story that Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which would be like saying, hey, Jesus took his disciples to Las Vegas, and you're going, Okay, that's, that's, that's a little weird for Jesus to be going there. And especially because it's a four-day journey and it's walking. It's four days walking uphill to get to Caesarea Philippi. And so you can imagine that even as they were going, the disciples are saying to Jesus, hey, we're going where? And why are we going there? And they get to Caesarea Philippi, and this is the occasion in which Jesus turns to his disciples and says to them, who do men say that I am? Now stop and think about that. Here's Jesus standing in the midst of a pagan temple with all of these false Roman gods surrounding him, and it's that occasion that Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some people are saying you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some people are saying uh, that you're one of the prophets, come back. And then Jesus says, who do you say? that I am. And it's that moment that Peter makes his confession and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, you know, well done, Peter, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My father revealed this to you. And then remember he says, and upon this rock, and I really believe he uses a play on words there. He says to Peter, upon this little rock, Peter, uh, I will build my church, right? And then he talks about this boulder that's going to be the thing that's the foundation uh, for his gospel. And then remember the next phrase he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How powerful is that that he's standing in front of a cave that they believe leads all the way down to hell? 
And in that moment, Jesus is saying to his disciples, what you and I are about to do is bigger than this. It's bigger than the world's most powerful government. It's bigger than all of this false work. What you and I are about to do is bigger than all of this. And suddenly that passage of scripture takes on a whole different context and meaning. And that's what the trip to Israel is like. So I just tell you, somewhere you're gonna wanna go, sometime you're gonna be part of it. I think we're gonna go again in about two years, so you might just wanna kinda put that in the back and say, hey, maybe the next time I wanna go and be part of that. But it was cool. But guys, thank you, and it was fun. It's good to be back in the room uh, with you. Uh, I think most of you guys heard us, hopefully on Sunday, many of you did, talk about this idea that we were encouraging the church to move 1%, uh, that, that, well, there you go, uh, a one percenter right there. All right. Uh, actually, that was Marty that was clapping. He's the executive pastor. He's going, yeah, man, one percent. And, and I get it. I, you know, I get who you guys are, and I just trust that, that the vast majority of this room is already tithing. Um, and so you, you get that conversation then wasn't for you. If you happen to be in the room and you haven't made it to the tithe yet, then there was a request that just said, hey, our offerings have been horribly flat this first quarter. I don't know why, guys. <laughs> It, we, a lot of sister churches are having the same thing happen right now, but bottom line is they've been flat way, way too long, and so we just challenged the entire church and said, hey, we, we trust that everybody wants to eventually be obedient to God in their finances, and so would you move 1%? Would you just simply go home, look at what you earn annually, and up whatever you're giving 1%? I say that to you guys because it's a real concern. It honestly is. We're, we're about a hair's breadth away from layoffs at this point. So would you just be in prayer, be in prayer for our church that our people would just take a step in maturity, a step in obedience, a step in faith, and would answer the 1% call that we just put out. And then the last thing I'm just gonna say real quickly, and I can't roll into it, we're hearing that we're potentially getting somewhere in the ballpark of figuring out a loan. So I can't say a whole lot more than, well, okay, we'll leave it at that. So I can't say a whole lot more than that, and I, and I don't want to, guys. Part of why I don't want to is because we've, we've been here twice already. We've had at least two other organizations that have said that to us, and then at the 11th hour left us at the altar. I feel like a rerun of Runaway Bride or something, but it, so, you know, I don't want to overly promise, but what I do want to ask you to do, and the reason I'm saying this out loud is, is I'm asking you to pray. I'm asking you to just go before the Lord on a constant basis over the next week and just say, God, would you, would you do that? And guys, if, if you have any doubt that we need more facility, and guys, I just wanna say, more facility is not about anybody's ego. More facility is about we're not done changing Chandler yet. That's what more facility is. And if you were here on Sunday, guys, spring break weekend, and we were overflowing services. I mean, guys, it, I don't know how to be more obvious that you and I need to get some more brick and mortar up so that we can do more of the assignment that God has given us. So my, here was my request, pray. Would you just pray uh, that God would take this moment, that he would provide, that we could land this loan, that we could move forward so that we can do the ministry that it just feels like God has laid in our laps and that we would be able to get back to business on some of that, okay? So let's pray real quick right now and then we're gonna dive into scripture and we'll go. Uh, let me pray for us. Dear Lord Jesus, we simply come to the moment, and God, we just thank you. We thank you for how good you are to us. We thank you for letting us be part of a church where just scores of people are coming to know you as Savior. And then we're watching lives get changed everywhere we turn. 
We're seeing people be transformed by the power of your gospel. We're watching them move into maturity. We're watching them make better decisions and more obedient decisions in their lives. And God, you've given this incredible privilege to us to be right at the cutting edge of what you're doing right here in the Southeast Valley. God, we're running out of room and uh, you know that. And we're simply asking, would you provide? Would you provide a loan at a great interest rate? Would you give us the opportunity to fill more buildings up with people who need to know Jesus, with children who need to discover you young before they make all sorts of mistakes? God, please give us this chance to do something really, really cool for you. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what I've been told is is that we got kind of started on uh, Romans chapter 12. Does that sound right? Sort of, I know it was a long time ago. Does that sort of sound right? Has it been so long that wherever I start, it won't matter? Okay, all right. All right, so Romans chapter 12, grab your Bibles, let's go there. This is an interesting chapter that actually uh, begins to dive into the whole topic of spiritual gifts. Uh, it's an interesting thing if you keep Romans and the progress of Romans in your mind. Remember that Romans started out and, and, and Paul said, look, uh, all the heathen are in trouble, all the really good people are in trouble, hey, even the Jews are in trouble, and then he talked about the idea that God provided a savior for us and that this second Adam had the ability to go to a cross and represent us the same way that the first Adam went to a tree in a garden and represented us at that tree that God would have a second tree and the second Adam would represent us on that. And then remember, once we became Christians, immediately Paul said, and here's the deal, this is hard stuff and there's all the things I want to do for God, but I don't do the things I know I should do and I find myself doing things I know I shouldn't do. And so I find myself in this place of having to constantly surrender, constantly allow God to be in control of my life and work on killing the old man. And remember at that point we began this process we called sanctification, this idea of growing up into the maturity of Jesus Christ and going along. We got to Romans chapter eight, and remember Romans chapter eight said, hey, even the really crummy stuff in your life, the stuff you hate, the things that in the moment you may have even questioned whether God was real or if God was alive, God used those things to form Jesus Christ in our lives. So even the hard things, God had the ability to make the good things uh, in our life. And now uh, we're moving on, and Paul is now saying, Okay, as we grow, how do we do this together? How do we engage in one another's lives to help all of us get as far as we possibly can in Christ? And now in Romans chapter 12, Paul begins to describe how the church is supposed to function and how you and I are to be contributors and be part of the church as we use our spiritual gifts. So here we go, it's Romans chapter 12. Uh, we'll start uh, in verse three. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, here's what it says. It says, for the grace, what's grace? Anybody know off the top of their head? You ought to know this. Come on, come on. It's on the test, guys. It's on the test. Unmerited favor, I hate that answer. It's too textbooky. Make it simple. Make, tell, make it something a five-year-old can understand. It's God's gift that I did not earn. It's grace is simply God doing something for me. And truth is, you and I could give grace to one another. Uh, you know, it's one of the things that we talked about on Sunday. If you were here on Sunday, we talked about, hey, there's gonna be a moment your spouse is gonna make you mad, make you a little frustrated, and you just choose to forgive them. You just say, look, I'm just gonna put grace on that. I'm, I'm not gonna hold, I'm just gonna 
let it be gone. Well, they didn't deserve for you to let it be gone. You gave grace, right? It's you and I. It's a gift given that was not earned, okay? Is it is what grace always is. Okay, so for by the grace given to me, uh, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself in sober judgment. Guys, guys, can I tell you that one of the most powerful things in your Christian life is going to be absolutely painful and honest self-awareness? I'm just telling you. The ability to say, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to be honest, that's a struggle for me, which means I probably need some Christians in my life who are going to hold me accountable in that area of my life. I need some people to be aware of that. Uh, I need to have friends who call me out when I get a little too far into that. Um, it, it, it's the ability to say, you know what, that's not my giftedness. I, I guarantee you guys, I am painfully self-aware that singing is not my giftedness. And if I weren't, you would all suffer for the lack of my self-awareness. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, one of the most powerful things in your Christian life is just brutal, honest self-awareness. And here's why. Because once I'm aware that that's an area of my life that I need to grow in, that it's an area of my life that God needs to do something with, I suddenly then am able to surrender to him and say, God, I, I do need your help. But the opposite is true too. If I'm brutally self-aware and go, you know what? If I'm honest, that's a place God has gifted me. That really is a place that's intuitive and it's natural in my life and it comes easy for me. And it, for some reason, it's easier for me than other people that I know, which probably means that's the area of my life God is trying to use me. And I cannot tell you how many people have missed the opportunity to be used by God and to be used in some sort of ministry, either in the church or in their community or in their workplace, and they did not act on it because they were not aware of how God had built them. How many, how many of you have heard this saying? You can do anything you want to do. You've heard that saying. How many of you said that to your kids? No, don't raise your hand. I don't. don't. You realize that's a lie, that that is probably one of the most horrible statements that you and I could ever say to somebody is, you can do anything you want to do. Because the answer is you can't. I will never be an NBA basketball player. I, it, it, is, it is not destined, and I don't care how much I practice, it is not going to happen. And I guarantee you, if you're honest about it, and if you think about it, there are things that you, you're just not built for. You may not be able to be an opera singer. You, you may not be able to be a mathematician. You're just not built for that. And how vile is it if you and I tell somebody, hey, you can be anything that you want to be? How many years do they waste chasing that? How, how, how much frustration do they live out in their life trying to be the thing they want to be that isn't the thing they were built to be? How much more powerful is it to say to somebody, you need to discover what God made you to be? Because the reality is every single one of us was built uniquely by God for his purpose. And if you and I can ever lock on to that which God built us to be and built us to do, all of a sudden our lives find unthinkable fulfillment. And we're going to talk a little bit in just a few minutes about spiritual gifts, but I'm going to say to you, I think this exceeds even spiritual gifts. I think it even includes talents. Why do you think God gives somebody an amazing singing voice? 
Is it so that they can uh, make all sorts of records and make millions and millions of dollars? Why, why do you think God gives somebody an amazing singing voice? Why, why do you think God uh, gives a young man or a young woman unbelievable athletic ability? Why do you think he does that? Is it so that they can go pro and sign some big contract? Or is it that ultimately they will leverage whatever that talent is so that Jesus would be glorified in their life? And I'm just going to tell you that if they take that talent or if they take the spiritual giftedness that we're going to talk about in a little while, and if they use that for themselves, it will always be hollow and it will always be unfulfilling. Which is one of the things that you and I are going to get challenged with tonight because Scripture is going to describe the fact that God has built every single one of us in this room to be a minister within the church. And the problem is some of those abilities and some of those gifts are very marketable in the secular world. And chances are, if you weren't careful, you used the spiritual gifts that God gave you to advance yourself in the marketplace. And yet that's not why God gave you that spiritual gift. He gave you that spiritual gift so that you would be a vital part of his church and that you would be able to affect the lives of other Christians. And if all you ever do with your spiritual gifts is market them to intel, you'll be highly empty in your life. Okay. Back to the passage. Do not think more, verse two, uh, do not think uh, of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each one. What does that mean? The faith that God has distributed to each one. Does that mean that God says, okay, you get to have a lot of faith and you know what, you're gonna have crummy faith and I, okay, you can have mediocre faith. What does it mean when it says the faith that God has distributed to each one? What do we think? So Mike Runners, get ready, because we're going to take some shots at this. Who, who thinks they had an idea? What does it mean when God says, the faith that God has distributed to each one? Anybody? You are that terrified. All right. I think it means, um, like you were just saying, we've each got a gift that we're supposed to use. Okay. So God gives us that measure to what the job is he has for us to do. He get, so here, here's where I think we're partly tracking it. I think, I think the spiritual gift may be given in proportion to whatever assignment he attends, intends for you. Let me give an example. One of the gifts we're going to talk about is the gift of teaching. And if, if God has in his plan for you that you're going to be teaching to very large crowds, then chances are God's going to give you that spiritual gift at a really high level so that you're able to fulfill that purpose that he's going to give you. So that part we're tracking together on. But I think faith is a different issue. I think the level of my faith, the depth of my faith, is different than spiritual gifts. And I don't believe that faith is a spiritual gift. I believe that faith is a maturity issue. Because baby Christians have usually very weak faith, right? And mature Christians would tend to have stronger faith. So what does it mean when it says, according to the portion of faith that God has given to you? 
What do we think? Who else? Another stab at it. Okay. I would assume it means whatever you can actually believe God for, you can receive. Say it again. Whatever you can believe God for, you can receive. Sometimes. No, let me, let me, here's why I have to be careful, I think, with that particular statement, is I have to be believing according to his will. Because I can believe God for a Cadillac all day long. But if that's not God's will, then my believing is not going to change that answer. Does that make sense? But if I'm in the midst of God's will, and God really has planned for me a Cadillac, but in my case, actually, be a BMW. But anyways, if, if it was what God had planned, then faith, believing that, is absolutely going to be a part of God fulfilling that in my life. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. Okay, maybe this is come true. If you're a single woman and you believe with all your heart that God is going to bring you a boyfriend to propose to you this week and you're not even dating, my guess is I don't care how much faith you have right now. That's probably not the plan of God. Probably not. Faith, faith is not about how strongly I believe something as much as it is who I am believing in. Remember when Peter gets ready to walk on the water and uh, he takes three steps, which, by the way, was better than anyone else that night, right? Uh, there's 11 guys all still sitting in the boat. But when he takes his eyes off Jesus and begins to look at the waves and the water, he immediately sinks, and Jesus says, O ye of little faith, why? He had enough faith for the first three steps. It's when he took his faith off Jesus and began to put it in human capacity. And, and the measure of my faith is always not how strongly I believe something, but who I believe in. Because here's the deal, if, even if Peter had been walking and had been scared out of his mind, if he would have simply kept his eyes on Jesus, he would have taken the next three steps. Does that make sense? It's who he was believing in that became the problem with faith, not how scared he was, okay? All right, so back to the question again. What do you think it means when he says the portion of faith that God has given them? All right, one more, and then I'm going to give you a hard time. Um, well, in my Bible, it says um, having then gifts differing according to grace. So does it have to do with like... That what does like, yours say? Um, it says in verse 6, like... Oh, you read He's, down. You went further. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. That's okay. That's good. That's called context. Good. Um, like, basically, that, like, all of our gifts are different, kind of like, okay. the, like a literal body. Like, you know, the feet are different from the heart, and that's different from, like, your hands, but they all have equally important uses to keep the body functioning. So, like, we all have different spiritual gifts. And, yeah, no? Here, so here's, here's where I'm struggling. I, I don't think faith is a spiritual gift. I just, I don't, guys. I think faith is a maturity issue, which actually, if you think about it, was a clue. Because right now, as we are in this section in the book of Romans, what's the thing that, that Paul is trying to help us understand? How to get more mature. How do you grow up? So, as I'm working, uh, maybe this helps. Maybe this helps. 
if you're teaching, if you're teaching a child to ride a bike, do you start them on a 10-speed first? Okay, is that like an old thing? Do you have 10-speeds anymore? Maybe not. All right, mountain bike. Do you start them on a big old hairy mountain bike first? Is that what you do? No, what do you start? What do you start a kid who's first trying to ride a bike? You start them on a trike, right? Not even training wheels, a trike, right? Because it's got great stability, it's got all that, and now they're learning the basics of bike riding, even though they're not even really on a bike yet, they're on a trike. And then you get a little further and you actually buy them their first bike, but you put on the back of it what? Training wheels, right? And then eventually you try, start trying to sneak the training wheels off, but you're still holding the bike while they're riding the bike, right? And then finally you're able to let go of the seat. You incrementally taught them to be competent at bike riding. Is it possible that that's what this is talking about? That God works in every one of our lives, brings moments in our lives that require faith. But if you're a baby, 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 baby Christian, guess what type of faith challenges God brings to you? He brings you trike challenges, right? And he puts you on a trike and he says, okay, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, because you're so young in me and you're such a baby Christian. I know that this is terrifying. I know this is gonna scare you a little bit. I know, I know, I know, but this is what you're ready for and so this is what I'm gonna challenge you with because this is all the further your faith is gonna be able to be stretched right now. But once you begin to have confidence, once you begin to have enough faith, he moves you to a bike with training wheels. And he says, okay, I get it. And so it feels a little wobbly. So this is a whole new day. It's a whole new thing. But we're going to help you have faith that you can master the bike. What happens the moment mom or dad takes the training wheels off to the heart of the kid? Ah! Right? Because now we're up in the game. We're taking it a whole new place. What if, just, just what if, what if this is exactly the process that God does to develop our faith? That God originally takes us and says, okay, I, I know, I know, I know you're a baby Christian. I know that you even trusting me for, and you, you name it, trusting me for giving up that sin, trusting me for putting that money in the offering plate, trusting me, whatever that is, trusting me that this person's sick and that I'm gonna take care of, whatever that thing is. But we're doing trike-level Christianity right now, and I'm going to develop in you trike-level faith. And then he comes back and says, okay, it's time for a bike with training wheels, and we're going to develop a whole different level of faith in you. And if that's really how God works with us, then wouldn't it be proper to say to each of us, as God has apportioned, as God has place that faith in our lives because that's how far God has developed us so far in our faith. And it was the training of God. It was the teaching of God. It was the challenges of God that stretched our faith to believe Him even more and to be more faith-filled in our lives. Does that make sense so far? How many go, okay, Lynn, it sort of makes sense. Come on. How many sort of makes sense? How many are going, Lynn, you lost me a long time ago? All right. So here's the next piece I just want to toss out, and I want you to process a little bit. If this is true, if God develops faith in us, if he takes us from being baby Christians with very little faith, and he takes us to being mature Christians with lots of faith and confidence in him, 
What are the things which produce the most faith in your life? What are the moments that have taken you the furthest in actually saying, man, I, after that, I actually believe God and trust God more than I did before that happened? What type of events produce the most faith in you? What are they? Trials? Is that what James said when he says, count it all joy when you're in different trials, knowing that the trial in your faith develops? Ooh. Which means that this willingness that Paul's talking about to be obedient to God, to follow God, to be discipled by God, to grow in God, means there's going to be moments that he is absolutely going to stretch your faith. Which is why, guys, I'm just telling you as a Christian, when you and I face difficulty, when you and I face hard times, why do we freak out? Why do we get all weirded out about that? Didn't God say, I'm going to grow you up, which means I'm going to take the training wheels off. I'm going to put you on bigger, bigger things. I'm going to develop a Christ-like, mature faith in you, but the only way you get there is by me taking you through deeper waters. Which is why, guys, I'm just going to say out loud, following Jesus is going to be the hardest thing that you ever do in your life. Because if you're ever going to be a fully cooked disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to have the scars to prove it. And if that terrifies you, you should probably run away right now. Because I'm just telling you, the heart of God is to produce in you Christ-like maturity and faith. Which means you're going to have to do a little water walking along the way. You don't learn faith in the boat. To each one has God, has a portion. It's, he's basically saying, as far as God's been able to get you so far, as far as God's been able to develop and work in your life so far. Okay, question. Yep. I'm going to kind of make a connection on the, on, the, on the verse. Why does he put this section you're talking about as far as the, the faith, the portion to you? Why does he start it off with, don't think more highly of yourself? I, it's a, there's, a, there's a good question there, and I, I think there's two potential possibilities, and I'm not sure which one to fully land on. I think one of them is what we kind of unpacked a little bit together. If, if God's really going to develop within me Christ-likeness, then I need to have a really clear self-perception of who I am and the places I need to grow. I think the other possibility here is, is that this tension between me and faith, because part of faith is coming to a point where I say, okay, God, I've done what I can do in my human capacity, and I know I need you to show up in order for this to turn out. You've heard people say sometimes, hey, when's the last time you took a risk with God that if God didn't show up, you were going to utterly fail? So it's getting to that point where I go, hey, I know I'm at the end of my human capacity, and I know that whatever success happens, it has to be you, because I can't possibly make this turn out the way it has to turn out. But if you've got too high of a self-esteem, in other words, you think you're all that and a slice of apple pie too, you're not going to ever get to that point where you truly have to rely on God. You'll keep relying on yourself because you're overly confident in your own capacities and gifts. Does that make sense? So I think it has, I'm not sure, I think it can be going either direction in that moment. That's a great question. It really is. Anything else real quick? All right, right here, one more real quick. 
And then we got going. You guys are slowing me down. All right. So right here. Oh, okay. You got one there. Okay. Oops, sorry. Um, I, I know for me, I tend to, to really look at the fact that when I lean on my own understanding through uh, my trials or my successes, uh, I, I tend to get in the most trouble. Hmm. Um, and, and just kind of putting it back from what you're talking about, it's, it seems like God will never give us more than what we can handle. And so I, as I lean on my own understanding, sometimes I always look forward and I say, get away from that thinking and trust in God and have the faith that he knows what's best for me. Yeah. Okay, and we had one here real quick. Still got it? All right. I just had to say real quick, excuse me, sorry. <laughs> wow. Um, I just had to For say. For a second, I thought God was intruding right, in the Bible. So you're, whoa. Right. Remain in his image, right? You know? Yeah. Um, just to, in reference to what you said a moment ago, uh, Romans 5, 3, 4 is like one of my favorite scriptures in the whole word. And like, it was revelation to me because it says, I don't know verbatim, but you can rejoice in times of trial and tribulation because it builds character, strength, endurance, and and, you yep. know, it all, God brings it all together for one. So I just thought it was really cool that you pretty much touched base on that. And it says it right here if you go back like five chapters. So yeah. Five, six, seven chapters. Hey, guys, at the end of the day, God is not calling any of us to be comfortable. He's just not. And following Jesus has nothing to do with comfort. He's, follow, he's calling us to look like Christ. And if you remember, Christ was obedient even to death on the cross, which should have been a pretty good hint to all of us that said, I'm ready and I want to follow Jesus, that it potentially had sacrifice involved. And I'm just telling you, this following God thing means you and I are going to be willing for him to stretch us and take us to places we didn't expect, to make sacrifices that we never intended, to cause us to have faith in moments that are really, really hard to have faith in. And it's part of this growing us up uh, in the journey thing. Okay, so here we go, jiving back in, uh, because he's about to tell us how we are to start producing this in each other and taking each other as far as we can spiritually. Uh, verse 4, for just as each one of, of us has a body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs, you ready? Each member belongs to all the others, which means you do not belong to yourself. And Christianity is never a solo sport. And whatever gifts and whatever capacities God gave you, He did not give them to you for you. He gave them to you for the body which means if you're not expressing the giftedness that God gave you for the body and for the purpose of raising up fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, then you are stealing from the body because those gifts were not intended for you. We all belong, it says, to one another. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance uh, with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouraging, then, then encourage. Then, uh, 
give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. Uh, if it is to lead, then do so diligently. If it's to show mercy, do so cheerfully. And then there's actually another passage that gives us uh, a little bit of a list of spiritual gifts. So grab your Bibles and go with me real quick to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. verse 11. And here's what it says. Some of them are repeated. Some of them are new from what was just listed in Romans 12. It says, so Christ gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, and to be teachers to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, some would come back and say, hey, wait, 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 Lynn, that's maybe not a list of spiritual gifts. That may be a list of offices. Uh, that happened in the church, the evangelist, the teacher, the preacher. The reason I'm not sure if you can land there is, is that uh, he starts off by saying, hey, he gave some, um, Christ gave himself some to be apostles, some to be prophets. Remember, prophecy was in the Romans 12 list of gifts. He gave some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, some to be teachers. Teachers was in the Romans 12 list of gifts. Um, so I, I think there's potentially some bleed over there. And Although these may include some office-type things, I think there's some gifting, uh, spiritual gifting for the body because the very same purpose, what does he say in Ephesians? This is for the building up of the body, and that's what their purpose is. How many people in the room would say, I think I already know my spiritual gift? Oh, good, like six of us. That's great. That's really, really good, which means we're probably highly functional with all our spiritual gifts since we all know them, right? All right, so here's what I want us to do for a few minutes. I'm going to go through, I want to give you a real quick uh, definition of each of the gifts and maybe some of the characteristics that are a part of that gift. And what I would love for you to do is listen and try to diagnose and say, I, I wonder which of those gifts is the giftedness that God has given me. And uh, chances are you may have one. Uh, sometimes someone will have two, maybe even sometimes as many as three. That I think that's a fairly rare moment. But there's, there's almost always a really dominant at least one uh, in every single one of our lives. So let's go through the list real quick. I want to give you some, some characteristics and definitions of it. I would love for you to try to land on. So when we get to the end, I'm going to come back and say, okay, how many of you think you have the gift of mercy? How many think you have the gift of prophecy? And we're going to see if we can get a little closer now. Okay, so Romans 12 started off by listing this gift of prophecy. Here's what I'm going to suggest to you. I do not think that the gift of prophecy, as it's talking about in Romans 12, is talking about somebody who is foretelling the future. I do not think that's what it's talking about. Matter of fact, if you even think about the Old Testament prophets who were doing all the prophecy, uh, very little of what they did was actually foretelling the future. If you look at Jonah, Jonah has like this long that's actually prophetic, and yet he was a prophet all of his life. He spent the majority of his life forth-telling, in other words, declaring the already known truth, okay? And I would suggest to you, especially in the church today, that the primary purpose and, and, and responsibility of those who potentially have the gift of prophecy is they tend to be truth-tellers. They tend to be people who have to say something out loud, and it has to be biblical, and they feel compelled to do this. So let me give you a few characteristics about it. Uh, people who have the gift of prophecy tend to be motivated to reveal unrighteousness. Uh, they're the first ones to call out sin. 
Uh, and they typically are hyper, hyper concerned about it being biblically true. Boy, if the Bible says it, the Bible's right, and if you don't agree, you're wrong. And if that's how you live your life, chances are you have the gift of prophecy, okay? Especially if you say it that way to others, then you probably are a prophet. Um, a lot of times people with the gift of prophecy tend to have a pretty strong speaking gift. Uh, they tend to be able to formulate ideas and words really, really well. And again, they tend to have a very, very strong reference to Scripture. Um, here's the interesting thing about prophets. Prophets tend to take and feel a personal responsibility for other people's sin. So they see other people's sin, they go, I need to tell them they're sinning. I, I need to go confront them about their sin. If I don't, I would be responsible for my silence. Uh, a prophet uh, will watch something on TV and they'll go, I need to write them a letter. Now they may never do it, but they feel the need to write a letter about that, okay? Uh, it's probably a gift of prophecy. Um, people with the gift of prophecy tend to have pretty darn good discernment with people. They tend to be able to see things uh, and get right to the core of it really, really quickly. Okay, a biblical character that would potentially have the gift of prophecy, James. If you read the book of James, James is the most black and white, hey, get right with God or get out of the way book that you'll find in almost the entire Bible, gift of prophecy. How many people in the room say, hey, I think maybe I have the gift of prophecy? Okay. Uh, chances are your spouse would uh, agree with you. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the next one uh, is the gift of mercy. This one is also in Romans chapter 12. Uh, here's the irony. People with the gift of mercy are people who want to bring harmony and healing to people. So they are almost the opposite of the people with the gift of prophecy. So they want to be sure that everybody's okay and nobody's feelings have been hurt. Uh, they tend to be highly attracted to people that are in distress or hurting. Uh, these are the people that pull over the side of the road and pick up stray dogs. Uh, they have the gift of mercy. Um, there is a tendency with people who have the gift of mercy to sometimes be people pleasers. They're very, very worried about what other people think. Um, and here's, you wanna hear something really, really interesting? People with the gift of mercy are sometimes very attracted to people with the gift of prophecy. Isn't that interesting? Amen, amen. amen. It, you know why I think that happens? Because people with the gift of mercy know they need to go behind the person with the gift of prophecy and clean up the mess, right? <laughs> Heal all the broken hearts. Um, uh, probably an example of somebody who had the gift of mercy in Scripture was the Good Samaritan. Didn't matter that that person was a, you know, a different nationality. Didn't matter that it really wasn't probably politically correct to respond. They saw, simply saw a hurting person, and they couldn't help themselves but from helping. Uh, and how many people in the room say, hey, you know what, I think maybe I've got the gift of mercy, okay? Uh, anybody ever tell you that you help too much? You probably got the gift of mercy, okay, all right. Uh, gift of evangelism, which actually comes out of the Ephesians 11 uh, passage. Uh, people who have the gift of evangelism feel the absolutely compelling need to talk to everybody they possibly can about Jesus. So they're standing in the grocery store line, and they're saying, hey, uh, you know, if the cash register just like closed on your head right now and you died here, would, would you go to heaven? You know, do you know for sure? 
And here's the interesting thing about the people with the gift of evangelism is that for some reason, they seem to get away with that conversation. I don't know about you, but if I said the same thing to the cashier, she would shoot me with mace. You know, she, she would be mad, but somehow, typically, people to get advantage, the person behind the cash register goes, you know, I've been wondering about that. And it, it's just a really, really interesting thing. Uh, you don't want to ever sit on an airplane next to a person with the gift of evangelism because you're going to ask Jesus in your heart again. Um, uh, one of the downsides of people with the gift of evangelism is sometimes they see everybody as customers uh, that they need to sell on the gospel. Um, there is an amazing ability with people with the gift of evangelism to somehow weave Jesus into casual conversation. I, 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 you're talking about the weather, and next thing you know, you're, it's Jesus. He, he gets in there somewhere. Uh, someone who potentially had the gift of evangelism was probably the Apostle Paul. Uh, the guy just everywhere he went was telling people about Jesus. Anybody in the room say, hey, I think I've got the gift of evangelism? Okay, three of us, okay? So all I'm going to say out loud to you is you realize that in every one of the spiritual gifts, you and I are all responsible to at least be functional in the gifts, which means, hey, there is a time to tell the truth, and you've got to be willing to tell the truth when you need to. There's a time to show mercy, and you can't just go, oh, I don't have the gift of mercy, so let the guy die. You know, you can't, you can't do that, right? Um, and, you know, you and I have got to have moments we share our faith, even though I don't have the gift of evangelism. You and I are called to be functional in all the gifts, but we will excel in the one that God has placed in our lives, okay? Um, giving. Uh, people who have the gift of giving uh, tend to be really generous. But here's the thing that's interesting about people with giving. They, they don't tend to be generous just willy-nilly, and they're not just tossing their money in every direction. Very often, people with the gift of giving also are amazing savers, and they're actually very, very studious and careful with their money. It's just when they see something worthy, then they tend to give very generously to it. Uh, which is interesting because within the church, they'll look and they'll say, oh, you know, I don't really like that program. I'm not sure I'm confident about that. And all of a sudden, then they see something that really, really excites them and they get it and all of a sudden, they're all in and they're hyper, hyper generous uh, with that gift. And again, remember, all of us are supposed to give, but people with the gift of generosity will give above and beyond what all of the rest of us do. Um, some of the downsides of the gift of generosity sometimes is that people with the gift of generosity sometimes are so worried about their gift being effective that they can sometimes be overly controlling and overly directive, and they somehow try to steer things from the backseat through their gift, okay? But the other side of it is, boy, if they're excited about it, man, they are all in and the kingdom goes forward. Anybody in here go, I think maybe I have the gift of generosity? Okay, I want to talk to you after the… No, I'm teasing. All right. I'm teasing. Um, uh, a possible person who had the gift of generosity in the Bible is the boy with the uh, two fishes and the five loaves. I mean, think about it. Of all the times that someone could have said, hey, whoa, 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 I need what I got, and instead gave everything he had, right? Gift of generosity. Uh, gifted administration or governing. Uh, this is one of the gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, the motivation of this gift is to see others and resources used really, really effectively. These people are organizational. They tend to be naturally strategic. They tend to be natural planners. 
Uh, they tend to see the big picture, and they tend to see goals very, very, very clearly. Um, if you live with somebody with the gift of organization, there's probably things in your house that are organized that don't necessarily need to be organized, like sock drawers and colors in the closet, potentially. Um, a potential Bible character with the gift of administration uh, is Nehemiah. Uh, think about that guy doing this amazing building project of the walls of Jerusalem and getting everybody to work in the same direction and not complain. Uh, so Nehemiah. Anybody in here say, you know what, I think maybe God has given me the gift of administration? Look at that. Isn't that fun? All right. Uh, gift of teaching. Uh, teachers tend to delight in research. Part of this is, is that teachers want whatever they say to be accurate. Okay? They want to be sure that it's well thought out. They want to be sure that, uh, that all of the facts have already been uh, cleared. Sometimes teachers can get so much into the facts that they don't necessarily get too much into the practical. That's not always true, but it's one of the dangers of a teacher because to them the information itself is just so compelling that you just need good information. That's why sometimes they're math teachers. Um, uh, Luke is probably a person who has the gift of teaching. Uh, Luke is the longest gospel of all the gospels because Luke wanted you to get all the details. So he filled in a whole bunch of blanks that none of the others did. Probably had the gift of teaching. Anybody in the room say, you know what, I think maybe I've got the gift of teaching? Isn't that interesting? All right. Uh, gift of service. Gift of service. Uh, people with the gift of service are motivated uh, by meeting the needs of others and working behind the scenes. It's interesting, people with the gift of service almost never want to be publicly recognized. Uh, they don't want to be up on stage. Being up here and talking to you would horrify most people with the gift of service, but they don't mind working hard and they don't mind working behind the scenes in order to move the greater good forward. It is interesting, though, that people with the gift of service want somebody to notice. And maybe it's because the gift of service in some ways ties in with love languages, too. You know, one of the love languages is service, acts of service. And so they want to know, be sure that you've seen the fact that they are expressing their love and care. They want you to say, hey, I thank you. Thanks for carrying out the trash. Thanks for cooking that meal. Thanks for doing that. And not even so much for the thank you, but just so that you, they know that you saw their heart when they were doing the acts of service. How many people in here say, you know what, I think maybe I got acts of service? Look at that, okay. Uh, another spiritual gift. Oh, uh, potentially uh, somebody that had uh, acts of service might have been Timothy. Uh, Timothy spends most of his career supporting and helping Paul. I think another one that potentially maybe had acts of service is Barnabas. Barnabas also spent almost all of his life supporting Paul on the deal. Uh, exhortation. People with the gift of exhortation uh, believe that a word spoken in the right moment is the most valuable thing that you can possibly do. And so they love to look for somebody who's a little bit down, who's struggling their lives, and they want to encourage them. They want to lift them up with their words and reinvigorate them in their lives because they motivated them at just the right moment with the right words of encouragement. And it's interesting because these people are also attracted to people that are struggling with problems. But remember, the person who had the gift of mercy probably did more practical things, and the person with exhortation did more encouraging things. People with the gift of encouragement often are wonderful peacemakers. Uh, they often see things from a perspective that nobody else in the room uh, is seeing. 
the problem with people with the gift of encouragement, sometimes they are a little bit overly pushy, and sometimes they overly simplify because they believe they can talk almost any problem away. Uh, anybody in here say, you know what, I think maybe I've got the gift of encouragement. And I believe every part of it except to talk the people problem away because I can talk you out of that. All right? All right, gift of encouragement. Okay. Uh, Pastor Shepherd. And guys, again, I don't think this is so much office as it is function uh, in the body. Uh, people with the gift of Pastor Shepherd tend to be highly focused on wanting other people to get mature. And they're constantly, are we growing enough as a church? Is the class that I attend, are we all growing? Is the small group that I'm part of, are we all growing the way that we ought to be growing? Um, they constantly are asking, I wonder how that person's spiritual life is doing. These are the type of people that might just come up to you and halfway randomly just say, how are you in God right now? How's your walk? And you're like, dude, I just wanted to have a cup of coffee. I didn't want to, what, how's my walk? You know, but they're gonna take it uh, there. Uh, chances are Barnabas uh, might have had a pastor's uh, heart. How many in the room would say, you know what, I think maybe I've got a pastor's type of gift in my life? You are afraid to raise your hands because I'm going to call you to ministry or something. Or I'm going to go, hey, you're on staff tomorrow. All right. All right. Um, let me give you just a little, it's kind of a fun little thing. Um, it's a little story uh, that kind of uh, clarifies some of these. So the story is simply this. Uh, someone uh, is in a group of people, and they go off to get a tray of ice cream cups for everybody at the table. And on the way back with the tray of ice cream cups, they spill the tray of ice cream cups on the floor. And everybody sitting at the table had a different spiritual gift. So here's the responses. The person sitting at the table with the gift of prophecy who saw the ice cream cups fall over said, if you had been more careful, this never would have happened. Because remember, prophets speak the truth, whether you need it or not, okay? Uh, the person with the gift of mercy said, it could have happened to anyone. Don't feel bad. The person with the gift of evangelism said, if that ice cream cone was you and you were to die right now, would you go to heaven? The person with the gift of generosity said, hey, let's all go out for ice cream and all treat. The person with the gift of administration said, Bob, you grab the mop. Jane, you get some napkins. Phil, you go get another dish of ice cream for everybody. Gift of administration. The gift of pastoring shepherding said, how can we learn not to let this happen again? What's the lesson? Uh, the person with the gift of teaching said, the reason that it fell is because in a moment of distraction, the tray that was being carried was tilted at a seven-degree angle and not recognized. The person with the gift of service quietly got up from the table, grabbed a rag, don't worry about it, I've already cleaned it up. The person with the gift of exhortation said, hey, the next time, let's serve dessert before the meal. <laughs> and you get, guys, and this is one of the reasons that we all tend to respond just a little bit differently in the church, things we care about, but in the wonder of what Jesus did, now going back to the passage, remember he said, and Jesus and God placed every one of us in the church with differing gifts so that we would all minister to one another in the church. 
So my challenge to you tonight is, hey, what is your spiritual gift? What do we have on time? Five minutes. Okay, so we'll get… What is your spiritual gift? And then maybe even more importantly, are you using that gift in the context of the church? Because think about this, guys. If, if you and I run into somebody and they're missing a limb, we immediately say, hey, that's someone who's disabled. That's somebody who's handicapped, right? So what is the church without you using your spiritual gift? Handicapped, disabled, because you were created to fulfill the gift that God has given you in the church. It's why you were created. It's the reason you have the capacities you have. Okay, real quick, this is a little bit off note. Um, do unsaved people have spiritual gifts? Isn't that a great question? Do unsaved people have spiritual gifts? How many say, I think unsaved people may have spiritual gifts? How many say those dirty unsaved people don't have spiritual gifts? Okay. Here's my best guess. I, we can, you can leave thinking about this or disagree. I think every single person born in this world is born with a spiritual gift because the heart of God is that every single person would come to know Jesus Christ and have their place in the church. Here's what I'm going to suggest. And here, here's, why, here's why I lean that way. Because I've seen people with the gift of leadership who weren't Christians. And I've seen people be merciful who weren't Christians. You have too. Here's what I think happens. I think every one of us is born with that spiritual gift innately in our lives because of God's creation, but I believe it's a little g gift when we're born. It's a small lowercase g. That when we encounter Jesus Christ and when the Spirit comes to live within us, He turns it into a capital letter, and suddenly it blooms. Suddenly it grows into fruition in our lives if we let it, which then would take you and I to the next thing. How far have you let God develop your gift? Has it really become a capital G gift in your life because you've let him develop it in you for the good of the body? Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord, we, we just come before you tonight and thank you so much that every one of us in this room was born to purpose that every one of us has a place in the body, in the church, that we actually are able to minister, to do things that have eternal significance and eternal value. And God, my prayer is simply this as we would leave this place, that we would feel challenged to find our place in the body, that that we would identify uh, our spiritual gift, and then we would suddenly begin to engage and to use that gift for your glory and praise, that the church would be stronger, that the church would be more mature, and that, God, we would be fulfilling our purpose in life. God, how beautiful would it be if every single Christian were living in their giftedness in the body? God, make us that type of church. And this we pray in Jesus' name.